0: say for me one thing that uh, jumped to mind while I was reading this was that uh, proverb from hell uh, eternity is in love with the production of time I think like the um, the multiformity of of the characters and the the objects and the uh, sort of the time in this uh, short story kind of speaks to that but With that, that's one thing that um, I'm looking forward to discussing is the nature of time and the multiformity that we find in relation to time. But what about you guys? What stuck out to you about this uh, short story?
1: If you don't mind, I can just read out in in the Spanish edition. There's a short statement from Borges, like before the story. If you want, I might help frame it a little bit. Um, Yeah, go for it. Let's see. He, he's referring to a bunch of different stories, but then he says the seventh one in this section, the Garden of Forking Paths, is uh, it's like a police narrative. Readers will assist in the execution, and all the preliminaries of the crime. Whose purpose? Um, they don't, they can't ignore, and they won't understand at first. It seems to me until the final paragraph. And there's a there's a bunch of stuff that refers to other stories, but then at the bottom of this section, he says. It is an impoverished and uh, pointless labor of uh, compiling vast books, of explaining in hundreds and 500 pages an idea that could be perfectly um, explored uh, orally in a few minutes. Um, a better way of simulating this is uh, assimil- simulating books that already exist. Sorry, I'm translating on the fly. <laughs> um, uh, sorry, what do you say? Uh, sorry, yeah, more, more reasonable and more lazy, uh, I've always preferred writing about uh, notes about books that don't exist, uh, imaginary books. So anyway, just those two little sections there sort of frame a little bit for me for what the, is happening in the in the story. <laughs> Sorry about the stumbling there.
0: Thank you for that. It was, first of all, very impressive on the fly translation. I think that does speak to um, a lot of what we'll be discussing because um, even when we discussed the LF and in our roundtable. I know that's one thing that I've really been focused on during these stories is the uh, sort of the converging of language, of stories, um, of communication. And especially with Borges, kind of the the relationship of uh, the the infinitude that um, we see in stories like the Aleph and certainly in this one.
1: I mean, did you we want to start just pulling out some of the the themes, and then we can kind of see what, where people how people feel about them? So th- there's obviously there's the the soldier, the the guy who's a, a spy for the German side um, in England, it seems. There's this professor, this guy Albert, um, the guy he goes to meet, and then there's the the ancestor. I forget the name of the ancestor uh, of the main character, who forms kind of like the backdrop of the. Um, the work of the labyrinths that they're both characters are reflecting on.
0: Ping, although my Chinese pronunciation is probably atrocious. Yeah, I suppose the exposition is a good place to start, too. Um, One thing I noticed in this story is it's kind of unique in the sense that it begins with a reference to a history book, and then it goes right into um, Expanding on something that uh, isn't clear in that history book by moving into a dictation of um, someone who's committed a crime, right? And the rest of the story follows that dictation. Yeah, I agree with Yaliosha. It's definitely um, a common point for his story is that sort of like just, you know, it, it just moves with it, right? It doesn't really set, there's not a whole lot of setup. It's just your. Immediately thrown into something that's um, unfolding. Um,
2: personally, uh, so this is my first time actually encountering any work by, by Borges, and for me, it it there were a lot of similarities to uh, to the work of like Joyce, for example, in like Finnegans Wake, um, where it's constantly oscillating between kind of more um, abstracted, ethereal notions of kind of of kind of beauty uh, mixed with kind of like the, uh, the, the, the physical plot that's happening at, uh, at any given moment. Um, that, that's kind of like one of the most immediate, like kind of aesthetic um, like devices that I, that I saw uh, most consistently throughout the story. And I think that uh, the effect kind of gives almost the, uh, the, the kind of logic of a dream in a lot of ways. Where, uh, where we're kind of following a progress, a progression of a narrative that isn't uh, that is at once coherent, but at the same time not. So I I think in in a lot of ways it kind of, you know, does a lot uh, does a lot of very interesting things, just kind of structurally that I uh, that I think um, would be more worth examining.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the nice examples of that is near the end of the story when the uh, the main character um, I think his name was Zun or Zun yep Dr. Yu Zun when he's contemplating that him and um, uh, Mr. Albert the, around them are these like manifold manifestations of them almost like ghosts all representing potentialities in time right and then the way that that just disappears with the emergence of that uh, of um, Richard, of Captain Richard. So I, I think you're right. There's definitely like this juxtaposition of this almost like mystical or even like a sort of transcendental um, presence in relation to the presence of um, the now, as the uh, Dr. Zune mentions.
1: I think Firebird brought up a good point in the chat of maybe the way in which the story is told has something to do with time as well. And that, you know, one of the things that's said towards the end of the story is the professor says, you know, I think I figured out what is at the heart of this labyrinth novel and it's that it's all about time, but it's time isn't mentioned. So there's a question I asked in the chat as well of like, if, if the idea here is that there's something about um, either the nature of a thing or language that the very thing that it's about, isn't able to be spoken, or is it you know you, you work around it? Is there something in the story itself in that sense? You know, because the story obviously very clearly talks about time and draws those themes out, but what is the unspoken, sort of like invisible premise at the heart of it?
3: Maybe that it's dancing around. I wonder if, if
1: that's productive in any way. I,
3: I, I think one of the things that we have to uh remember is that uh, it was a practice in ancient China that uh, the characters for the emperor's name uh, were not mentioned, uh, were not ever written down. And so um, they would use other characters in the place. And so that's how dating happens in, for manuscripts in, uh, in China, is that uh, uh, if the emperor's name is not mentioned uh, then you know it was under that emperor's reign.
0: Yeah, and he could definitely be pointing towards something that's um, because obviously he's you know this is all taking place during World War One and right we're, we're in the backdrop of the story and, and the history that the story that this um, Doctor Son's uh. Dr statement is elucidating and shedding a new light on, is definitely, um, I think, speaking to that larger power structures in society, or at least um, those present during World War I, or at least war itself. Are there other thoughts? Where can we begin to see what, a, um, what word or what theme might be sort of um, underlying this, this story without being actually spoken?
1: I see some people are typing maybe just to help it along as well. I wonder also there's, there's a question a lot of like these different sides in the war and the character finding themselves caught between all the different sides and in a way not even believing in the the causes or the greater purposes of the war. But he has this kind of like personal mission to prove himself or prove to the, his own boss that he, I think the quote is uh, that a yellow man could save all of his armies, something like that. Um, and it repeatedly, I think, as he's approaching Professor Albert, there's a quote of uh, he's saying, "I can't. How could a man ever be against a country? You know, it doesn't make sense." So, that, I wonder if that's another theme that to, to ponder in, in this.
0: Yeah, and it takes us back to that, that sort of overarching backdrop of war, right? Um, especially World War One being. At least in, in history class in high school, it's presented to you as something that's um, is supposed to be like a question of allegiance to all these different countries going to war uh, for the sake of alliance and for the sake of nationalism, right? I'll say, too, one thing that interests me is this, this statement serves as like a a testimony, and in some ways a kind of confession, right? This is the Dr. Soon um, explaining how he, you know, what he did, how he did it, and sort of, um, you know, making a confession of guilt, if you will. And I wonder if that might lead us into um, answering the question Alyosha has posed. What is the, that more like underlying theme that's not really spoken? Jerry, could you expand on your idea about authorship?
2: Um, yeah. So, so basically I, um, I kind of had this, um, so I, so there's a kind of towards the uh, like about uh, about two thirds of the way through there's, there's a, um, there's a line in the, in, uh, in the, the English version that I have that says, uh, and, I'll, and I'll just give you the quote in full context. So I foresee that man will resign himself to, uh, to more atrocious undertakings, and soon, uh, soon there will be n- uh, no one but warriors and brigands. I give them counsel. The author of an atrocious undertaking ought to imagine that he has already accomplished it, ought to impose upon himself a future as irrevocable as, as the past. I thus proceed uh, um, at, as my eyes of a man, already dead registered, the elapsing of that day— which was perhaps the last, and the fusion of the nights So i I think with um with regard to this um idea of um kind of of time and ethics, um you know I think that um, Borges uh, kind of or Borges is constantly kind of um getting us to kind of think of time, um, as potentially, uh, existing in, in two ways in kind of like the, uh, um, in kind of a very, in kind of a very defined way, you know, very Christian, very kind of like, um, everything that has been, um, has been done, has been done and everything that will be done has already been done as well. Um, so, so, uh, so uh so in that way um you know we can kind of imagine uh the author as being uh both a uh you know kind of someone who uh someone who is a uh someone who provides definition but but uh as as can be seen through the uh through the example of the story by um, gosh what's, what's his name again um, uh, by, by, uh, through the story by the ancestor that uh, that those stories can also be undefined and can have multiple results and it's all it's all in the choice of the author that ultimately determines the uh, progression of time and the progression of narrative in a, in a way um, ultimately provides uh, reason for all the connections that exist um I think uh, you know I think there's a you know this pretty, connects pretty well to the work of Joan Didion in, in the White Album, uh, where uh, where her central uh, her central opening line is: "We need stories in order to live." Right? This it's this essential idea that um, as um, as humans we uh, we fundamentally need uh, stories in order to connect uh, to our um, to our material existence. Um. And, and that and that otherwise there, it's kind of like a, you know, a melange, a, a soup of kind of traumatic events kind of occurring all around us. So um, at once, the author defines both the past and the future, but at, um, but at the same time, it can also um, create, um, you know, a multiplicity of narratives, just depending on how um, how an author, how an individual can um act within uh within themselves upon the uh, upon the material and kind of um
1: non-material world. I think that's an interesting point because you also think about uh Dionysian waves chase in the chat keeps is bringing up that Borges is obsessed with metafictional self-conscious textuality and I think that is true if you think about the story like he he brings up at one point in the story the the moment in a thousand and one nights when it looped back on itself and it starts to Big narr- I think it's Shehrazad starts to narrate the beginning of Thousand and One Nights and it's interesting what you're saying yeah, I guess I think I'm thinking about you know the theme of there, there being these infinite parallel worlds and possibilities and the you know time not being this linear thing and what Borg has said in the, prolog- in the uh, prologue that I read to this story about the reader kind of being party to the crime you know that it's not just you know passively seeing this thing happen before them but that you know, the reader kind of enacts this by, by reading, is enacting this, the murder and the, the crime over and over again in the act of reading, uh, which might maybe that points to an interesting relationship between writer and author that's slightly different than the idea of like a passive relationship.
0: It's almost like in uh, ours literature, right? It's a story about, in some ways, writing and a story about uh, the, the act of reading and telling a story right all at once. Um, I do want to read out the quote from Augustine that Winterese gave us. Give me one minute to scroll up. Uh, Augustine of Hippo writes in, we believe, Book Nine of the Confessions, uh, something to the effect of, I know what time is until the moment I try to speak of it. And I think that does speak to the story in the sense that there's all these potentialities and multi-formalities that sort of exist simultaneously and yet uh, the narrator also points out that uh, I'm sorry not the narrator Dr. Soon also points out that things are happening in the now so in the same way like there's all these things that could be happening in the story and yet uh, we find that this is the path it takes, right? If it's a forking paths, there's a way that the labyrinth seems to be followed.
1: Does anyone want to read out the rest, the, the full fuller quote there that um, was bolded there from Winter East?
0: Oh, thank you. I missed that. Um, so Augustine says, what then is time? If no one asks me, I know. If I wish to explain to him who asks, I know not. Yet I say with confidence that I know that if nothing passed away, there would be, there would not be past time. And if nothing were coming, there would not be future time. And if nothing were, there would not be present time. Those two times, therefore, past and future, how are they? When even the past, now it even when the past now is not, and the future is not as yet. But should the present be always present, and should it not pass into time past? Time truly it could not be, but eternity. If then, time present, if it be time, only comes into existence because it passes into time past, how do we say that even this is? whose cause of being is that it shall not be, namely, so that we cannot truly say that time is, unless because it tends not to be. So then I like your point about starting to the, the day of the battle, right back into like the, the context of this confession. Um, and it speaks to that larger theme about um, the contingencies of battles and the way that warriors and um those involved in this fight boldly and bravely. So what do you guys make of this um, this story in the sense that uh, it elucidates a delay during World War One of uh, what would have otherwise probably have been a successful um, British attack?
1: So we're having a little debate here in the chat. Maybe others can weigh in about... Um... I'm just sort of trying to walk us back to the the, the narrative and see if we can walk through this. So the, the story starts with the delay of a battle that no one knows the true reason behind. We're, we're seeing a glimpse of it through this historical footnote that we magically have access to through the story. Um, the, the delay comes from a spy knowing that their demise is imminent and needing to communicate a message. But they don't communicate the message verbally or linguistically, uh, but in the incarnated death of the person they kill. That was my words. Uh, I was saying that I believe the protagonist continues to deny their own agency while at the same time having to make choices so they keep saying uh you know this was already going to happen or i foolishly thought maybe we can pull up those quotes but something about the on the train when he thought oh i I escaped richard madden by doing this but he was only postponing the inevitable um so i feel like there's an aspect of their sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy as well
0: Yeah, that could be uh, for my part. I'm not so sure he denies his agency, although I do agree with you. There's an interesting sort of vacillation uh, because Dr. Sohn goes from, you know, I, I'm i uh, I'm forced to be the spy for the Germans, but at the same time, I want to do this to prove to the Germans that my, um, my race, my bloodline is capable um, of what they're capable of, right, of what the Germans are capable of, if not more, that they are also warriors in that sense. So he does seem to have, he he seems to both recognize a problem of being forced into being a spy, like he's denying his agency, but he also seems to say, there's a reason I'm doing this. What do you guys think? Is the narrator, so Chase is a, Suggesting uh, Doctor Soon is exhibiting a kind of like bad faith that he's um, not being fully honest with us, or at least not with himself. What do you guys make of his um his choices and his reasons for doing so? Do you guys feel like he's being ethical or he's being unethical, or maybe both?
2: I mean, it seems to me that um, the narrator is trying to be um, as ethical as he can see through the boundaries of his own character. And what I mean by that is that he, um, he thinks that he's doing the right thing. You know, he thinks that because of his, you know, kind of positionality, and, and I'm kind of reading more kind of outside the text, but because uh, because of a lot of factors that have come to be in this uh in this character um that you know um to the extent that he's acting ethically um it's not it's it's not a deontological kind of ethics it's a um it's definitely more of a kind of um this is what is ethical from my subjective view um and so that, and so that subjectivity, I think, plays uh, plays into a really um, uh, big part here because um, you know, to uh, to the extent that something can be, uh, you know, a subjective, uh, you know, that somebody can, you know, kind of try and draw any objectivity from their subjective experience, one might uh, one might assume that they could be an ethical uh, an ethical being, but um, you know. It it uh, it's only when uh, you have um, multiple uh, multiplicity of narratives that um, one's ethics, uh, you know, can come to be seen as universal. Uh, and I think that's what um, Borges is trying to or Borges is trying to do here is he's trying to show that um, you know that there is kind of a grand. Um, like swath of, uh, of potentialities that exist within, um, within an individuals, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I think, I think what, uh, Dionysian just said right there, uh, which, uh, which, uh, which is what makes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and I think that, I think that's, that's kind of what, uh, what this is. It's a, um, your ethics kind of are a, um, kind of make your own narrative in a way. They they fulfill only um, only the the limits of the possibilities of your own experience. Yeah,
0: you know, I'm reminded too of um, so what you're describing sounds to me like you're saying it's not deontological, it's teleological, and in some ways I think it actually what Borges does is sort of juxtapose the two because there's there's the deontological nature of being a spy, right? So like whether you want to look at it from an ethical point of view or a legal point of view, there's obligations, there's duties, right? And in this way, I think you could even contrast that with his, with Dr. Sun's um, sort of internal struggle toward his ancestry in the sense that he's struggling with, um, does he have a duty to his blood to his ancestors and in that larger sense isn't there a sort of trajectory toward that um toward a purpose right of um that, that is intimately part of this um this bloodline this thing that he at once feels and is intimately connected with but also seems fragmented later on he says um uh, Mr. Albert has restored this to him.
1: I mean, I think it's also interesting that when uh, Professor Albert is describing what uh, Pen said that he was going to do, I'm looking at—I sorry—I'm looking at the Spanish edition. But he says, "I'm I'm retiring, or I'm I'm you know I'm stepping away from the world to write a book, and also I'm stepping away from the world to construct a labyrinth." And yeah, you know, I, I suppose it's obvious in a sense looking at it, but. Borges seems to be saying, oh, I'm sorry, and this final bit, um, the curious legend that Pen was proposing a, a labyrinth that would be strictly infinite. Um, so I, I feel like there's an implication here. And I did, do feel that fits with Borges' style of writing from the little I know, from what we've read and, and what I've read externally. That, you know, that there's no such thing as, that, that I guess, that to write, you know, to write a book and to write any kind of story. Is is always to construct this kind of labyrinth? Is to have this um, thing that has that is filled with many connections and many possible routes of, of understanding and meanings. Not not in a relativist sense, but in the sense of um, you know always being able to be picked up and sort of re-stitched in in a different way. Um, and yeah, I I, f- I feel like in a way that's kind of what he's getting at that there's no you know whereas. For a second there, right before that, I think the guy says, "Oh, this is the labyrinth here," and he points to the desk, and and the the, the protagonist misunderstands and thinks that it's an actual object, but then he says, "No, no, no, it's it's not. That's not what I mean. It's a symbolic labyrinth." Um, and I guess maybe going on Jerry's point, maybe there's a sense that that can also translate into experience as well, or just you know life as well. That you know the. The idea of linearly kind of moving through time and just having experiences without all of them kind of being pregnant with other possibilities is a bit, you know, short-sighted or a bit fallacious. You know?
0: Yeah, I like your point, right? Because there's a temptation to think of an ethical choice or an unethical choice. Um, and I think Jerry mentioned this earlier, like in terms of, um, you know, isolated from multiple narratives. But in the same way, um, and I think part of what the story is suggesting is it's not just multiple narratives, right? It's it, it's not simply spatially situated. It's also temporally situated, in which there's a multitude of other choices that can be made. And when you're you're making an ethical or an unethical decision, you're choosing. Well, at least in a sense you're enacting one of those potentialities contra- uh, in contrast to others. So why don't we think about that for a minute? How in control of choices um, does Dr. Soon seem to be? He's very attentive to planning, but there also seems to be some recognition of uh, contingencies and circumstances. So what do you guys make of him Um and his ethical decision-making in that regard.
2: Um, So I think, uh, so I think from, from my reading, he doesn't have full control. Um, He has, he has control only in so far as um, he can, um, you know, he, uh, he makes, you know, a choice, but, um, but whether that choice remains or if it, uh, or if it's altered. So for example, if we, if we think of, um, you know, the choice to, you know, not the, not kill the man who's entered into his house. Right. Um, there are, um, there were like five named possibilities that came out of that. And, um, I mean the ultimate choice as to which, as to which possibility, uh, is chosen is ultimately, um, uh, that it's ultimately kind of like a, uh, um, uh, what am I trying to say? It's ultimately kind uh, kind of, uh, determined by the author, um, who kind of, who in a way kind of removes the agency from, uh, from the individual in that sense, you know, kind of, in, uh, removes the agency from that, uh, from, uh, from, yeah, kind of like labyrinth, um, so it's so it's kind of so it's kind of in that way it's there um, you uh, the choice is only is only uh, made of free will insofar as the author allows it to be part of that free will um, it, it, at least that's how it seems to me
0: yeah I, I like the framing um, that Begum is uh, making about the labyrinth and the way that our choices um Maybe be more like a labyrinth than they are a um, sort of like series of causalities. Uh, just to read the uh, Begum wrote, she, she writes, can it be like stepping into a labyrinth? Maybe we have a choice whether to enter or not, but after then you are limited to a labyrinth in some sense.
3: I believe that the difference between a maze and a labyrinth is the, the labyrinth is one path all the way through. Does anyone know whether that's true?
0: Yeah, I do not know, but um, maybe it is worth talking about, like uh, what we mean by labyrinth time or by by labyrinth here. So when I think of labyrinth, I think of a series of dead ends and and ongoing paths. What about you guys? Perhaps uh, Alyosha, you mentioned the center. Would you expand on that a little bit?
1: Well, it's interesting. I mean, the character, what is it? He gets off the train station and then somebody tells him, oh, you know, the way to get to, you know, this Albert guy's place is, you know, you go and you keep taking laps and laps and laps until you get there. And he realizes, oh, that's actually the way that you can trace yourself to the center of a labyrinth. So, I, and I do know that imagery is something that comes up a lot with Borges. Um, I think it's interesting, Kent's question, because I think you're right. I just, you know, a, a pop scholarship wise, I have checked out the wiki. And there does seem to be this thing of while labyrinth and maze are usually synonymous, some people have tried to make the distinction that a labyrinth is a single path that you have to figure out basically how to, how to navigate to get to the center. But I wonder if that's completely appropriate because... Maybe there's an aspect of that in this, but then also, you know, he seems to be in in many ways, I mean, this is written in what, 1940, 41. And he's talking about things that maybe we take for granted now in a sense, but like, I mean, some of this stuff, like in terms of like quantum theory and parallel worlds and stuff like that was pure science fiction at that point. And so I wonder maybe, maybe it's labyrinthine in the sense that in the universe that you inhabit, There is that there is that path that it can you know it it goes in a particular direction but that it's not the only one and there's multiple labyrinths you know there's infinite labyrinths that lead they all lead to their their own conclusions Um, i'm not sure
0: you guys have any thoughts on the narrator to and i think this speaks to what aliosha is talking about and even the question that um, kent has posed for us Do you guys have any thoughts on the phrase "a labyrinth of labyrinths"? To to read the um, the passage, I'm thinking of this is on uh, page twenty three in my copy, appropriately titled "Labyrinths." Yes, it does come up in the text. It's about just before he gets to um, the scholar's house, Borges writes, "Beneath English trees, I meditated on the lost maze. I imagined it inviolate and perfect." At the secret crest of a mountain. I imagined it erased by rice fields or beneath the water. I imagined it infinite, no longer composed of octagonal kiosks and returning paths, but of rivers and provinces and kingdoms. I thought of a labyrinth of labyrinths, of one sinuous spreading labyrinth that would encompass the past and the future and in some way involved the stars. What do you guys think about that?
3: Well, that's interesting because the translation I have is different. Let me just read this one. I imagined a labyrinth of labyrinths, a maze of mazes, a twisting, a turning, an ever-widening labyrinth that contained both past and future and somehow implied the stars.
0: Yeah, and I kind of like the use of the word sinuous there, just because it implies that sort of like uh, that sinuous line, that line going, you know, up and down, up and down like a whip. But, um,
3: so in terms of some background, <clears throat> you know, I mean, uh, basically uh, mythopoetic time uh, is generally understood to be circular. And metaphysical time is generally understood to be a straight line. And uh, and so uh, there's a, a fellow named uh, Hatab <clears throat> who wrote about the transition between the meta- met- mythopoetic and the metaphysical that happened with uh, Thales and, and Aximander at the beginning of the pre-Socratic period. So that's the beginning of the metaphysical and um, so, so it, it's kind of interesting that um, Deleuze, um, you know, to kind of bring it back to Deleuze, Deleuze uh, kind of speculates that um, what's unique about uh, Nietzsche is that he uh, thinks time is a spiral, and uh, and that eternal return is not a uh, a circle, but is uh, a, a, a spiral. And he talks about this in uh, Nietzschean philosophy. So, if you look at a spiral, the interesting thing about it is that, uh, uh, and, and 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 Yeats talks about this in his, He uses the term "gyre" in uh, in uh, Yeats' uh, A Vision. And and in his poetry, so a gyre or a spiral uh, is going around in a circle, but uh, following a straight line. So either it's widening or it's contracting, right? But it's but it's it's going in a spiral, following a, a straight line. And when you think about that. <clears throat> um, in, in usually it's thought that in mythopoetic time uh, there's a uh, you know you're on this timeline and it's going in a circle so you're a point on the circle and you're going around but or you're a point on the line and going around but in a spiral you're you're on neither the line nor the circle and so so there's this other point that is uh, you know, if for past, present, and future is on the line, or past, present, and future is on the circle, then there's this fourth point, uh, which is a, a kind of moment of temporality that is not on the line in a spiral. And so I, I always thought that was very interesting, uh, what Deleuze had to say about uh, Nietzsche in that respect.
0: Yeah, that is interesting, although I'm not sure that's the. I think it might be worth comparing um, what Mr. Albert uh, says about time to that, because um, he he seems to criticize the idea of, um, or at least he says he starts with the idea of a novel uh, beginning with its so its uh, its last page, ending with its beginning, in contrast to a novel that sort of like self references itself, with the example of a thousand and. um, it was a thousand and one nights but he uh he sort of corrects himself and, and, and says of his discovery the explanation is obvious the garden of forking paths is an incomplete but not false image of the unit of the universe as swoop Pin conceived it in contrast to newton and schopenhauer your ancestor did not believe in a uniform absolute time he believed in an infinite series of times, in a growing, dizzying net of divergent, convergent, and parallel times. This network of times, which approached one another, forked, broke off, or were unaware of one another for centuries, embraces all possibilities of time.
3: Sounds this very is- right. <coughs> sounds very
1: rhizomatic. This is kind of why I was saying, I don't know if I buy the idea that it's purely that he's kind of getting at this thing of all the, the, you know, the the character's fate is kind of locked and it's, uh, he doesn't have that free will because in a way it's almost like one thing I'm noticing, even in that quote, that section that uh, Jack read, um, there's a moment where he kind of, he suspended. And I think he says something about, he feels like an abstract perceiver of the world for a moment before he kind of falls right back into this so-called fate that he's following. And so maybe in a sense, yeah, again, like we're, we're thinking about this idea of labyrinth, but not as a maze, but as this endless spiral. But he seems to implicate or, or imply that there's kind of moments, you know, again, where to use a Deleuzian term, there's lines of flight at different points that potentially could, you know, maybe cut you into another labyrinth. So not, not that you it's a maze like Kent was saying, but that there's another kind of set of paths that will lead you to another center. But what appears to be happening is that each moment that he feels that way, even in the moment Jack read earlier of being with the professor and then suddenly feeling like he has all those ghosts of the past or his ancestors or whoever, all of them around him. And then he blinks for a second and then he kind of is brought back to the sort of cold, rational mode of thinking and they disappear like that. There's always these moments where alternatives are presented, but if you, Again, I'm thinking back to that quote from the beginning of the, the Borges the prologue, where he says, uh, you know, uh, things that can be communicated in a few minutes in speech that end up being five hundred pages in a book, you know, like in a way, I see that as like the rational kind of sort of analytical faculties being that that book and the the what he's kind of sarcastically or ironically getting at with this the speech part, I think, is is these ineffable moments of reflection. So like whenever, the protagonist is in, is contemplative, it seems like he doesn't feel tied by his fate. All of a sudden he says, well, maybe it doesn't make sense to be against a person, uh, sorry, against a country, you know, when and, and there's that little, I don't know if anyone can find that quote, I don't have it in front of me, where he's he starts to wax poetic about the fireflies and the, the things around him in the garden, but then right back, he kind of still eventually falls back into his mission, which is exactly about opposing a country and, Working for one country over another and trying to, you know, lead to the destruction of one. So it's. I'm just thinking about the idea of linearity here. I don't know if it's completely, you know, linear in that sense.
3: I'd like to mention this statement. Um, I guess it starts here. I, I paused, as you may well imagine, at the sentence. I leave several futures, not to all. Uh, My Garden of Forking Paths, almost instantly I saw it. The Garden of Forking Paths was a chaotic novel. A a phrase, several futures, not all, suggested to me the image of a forking forking in time rather than space. So uh, another another thing that kind of reminds you of is the Everest's... uh, idea of uh, multiple worlds theory which is a simpler uh, model of uh, quantum mechanics than uh, the Copenhagen hypothesis where you know all the worlds are real uh, and they're constantly forking
0: yeah and I think that's closer to how I understand it because I don't I don't know if I really see this circular in the sense that um you know, there are these potential times that converge and diverge from one another that are parallel and intersect, you know, and this relationship of those times creates the labyrinth of labyrinths, I think.
3: Well, if, if the labyrinth is a uh, a single line that's going kind of going in a circle and going toward the center, uh, then a labyrinth of labyrinths would be kind of like a multi-dimensional stack of those, and so the, those could be seen as the forking paths, the, the the kind of multi-dimensional stack.
0: Yeah, or I I think um, if you want to use uh, Jorge's uh, his own symbol there, not so much a stack but a garden, right? To kind of like open up that that idea more where there's things blossoming, there's things wearing away and dying, there's things that are nurtured, and, uh, you know, it's a slightly different image, right? But it does speak to what you're describing.
3: It's kind of interesting that he says a labyrinth of, in this translation, a labyrinth of a labyrinth, a maze of mazes. You know, he doesn't say a labyrinth of mazes or a maze of a labyrinth. You know, so there's a there's also a chiasmic possibility there.
0: Yeah, and with that idea of chiasmus, because I think that's part of what Alyosha is locking onto what we've kind of described. Um, but I think you're right; it's not just about the center. Um, there's almost these two position or this basic juxtaposition in the near in um, Doctor Soon's life, right? The juxtaposition of his ancestry and the juxtaposition of like his role as a spy, like we were talking about earlier, and the way that these intersect and diverge from one another in in relation to how they could um, otherwise have that relationship. So why don't we try and think about that a little bit deeper? Jeez, um, oh I'm probably going to have to look for the quote, but somewhere in here he talks about his ancestry in the sense of like inheritance, but also in the sense that his ancestors are contained in him. That's, you know, it's the sort of image of their blood running in my veins, right? As though you're carrying around your ancestors with you, Um, not only biologically, but like uh, symbolically, and and even in the sense of an identity. What do you guys make of that, um, that conception, of um, ancestry, of of identity. Do you think that's kind of true? That there's this way that your your ancestors or your like uh, your your family tree kind of flows down into you and flows through you. Uh, is there almost like a fating going on there?
4: Mm, I I don't really think I um, have
2: um, something of value to. Say I I would much rather um, listen uh, to you people about this because uh, I'm I'm finding it difficult to think about um, this story. So um, I I don't really um yeah I'm finding it hard to um,
3: think about this. <laughs> I think we're with you there. I think we're all having a hard time thinking about this story. But it it reminds me of, I don't know if any of you have watched this, but the genealogy program on uh, PBS where they they take famous people and they uh, go back into their genealogy and then their DNA and they try to take back their story as far back in time as they can. And uh, and and really, uh, you know, connecting it to what we were talking about in Deleuze this week of the filial uh, relationships, what you see is that these um, family trees, you know, it, I mean, they are a forking. I mean, usually you're thinking of well, there's a person walking along, and they. And there's forking paths. But another way of thinking about it is that these are filial relationships and the family tree is is a forking path in time. And that um, and and, you know, in America, we we really don't value genealogy as much as, you know, in other cultures and uh, and. And so, when they go back into that family tree, they find some very surprising things that are that are extremely interesting. What happens? What happened to people that you know? Some some circumstance happened. the 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 one The one that stands out. There's two two stories that stand out uh, in those genealogy programs. One is the tracing back to the slaves. Who who in the slave registers they, there's only first names, so that so they never quite uh, no sorry only ages, so they never quite know the names of their ancestors when it gets back to slavery. So there's kind of a uh, the the accounting of the slaves is uh, cuts off many people from knowing their heritage. Uh, but the other one that stands out is the people who came from. Um, uh, Russia and Poland, who were Jewish, who got out before the program. And so when they go back, there's nothing of their family there. And and if their ancestors had not migrated, uh, and a lot of times those stories of migrations were fairly harrowing, uh, you know, they wouldn't have existed. So, So in that sense... If you look at those genealogy programs, you can see this the kind of like a dynamic uh, example of the forking paths of the filial.
0: So you used the word story earlier. I, I kind of like that framing. Let me try the question this way. Is our story that of our ancestors or are we writing our story?
1: I mean, I think it's interesting. I've been pondering as we've, you guys have been talking this section. Um, on the, I'm reading the English one now just to see how they translated it from pages six to seven that was linked in the in the chat. But he specifically says the professor, or sorry, the Albert says to sheep, uh, not she Pen, Sorry, uh, the protagonist. He says uh, an invisible labyrinth of time. To me, a barbarous Englishman has been entrusted the revelation of this diaphanous mystery. And then he kind of he's going on. He's talking about it a bit more. Um, but he says, to no one did it occur that the book and the maze were one and the same thing. A bit more, he says, Chi-Pen had d- died in the vast territories that were his came upon the labyrinth. The confusion of the novel suggested to me that it was the maze. And I wonder if there's also this thing there of like, um, you know, the idea of you know, there's a curse. The, the, I think the narrator says that they all, all him and his uh, ancestors had cursed the monk the Buddhist or Taoist monk who had published the manuscript because they thought, "Oh, look at this shameful piece of work that is meaningless and doesn't lead to anything." But there's something there. I don't think you have to go down a strictly Orientalist route either. I think there there might be something there that Borges is getting at about, which again, to me, feels like a kind of classic literary point in the sense of like, the you know the stranger, the, the the you know the the other essentially, and the stranger and the, you know it, it takes this so the, the narrator has the the weight of that history upon their shoulders and sort of coursing through them but it, it you know in the story they say well there's no one in the territories that this person ruled over that was able to find that secret and it took these this other person this wayfarer this other from another place to be able to see that um and i know that it sounds like it has maybe like colonialist implications and I suppose you could critique it on that level, but I, I don't think that's quite what Borges is getting at. And I feel like there's something deeper there.
3: So another thing they take into account is that the, uh, they actually write these kinds of stories now called uh, Choose Your Own Adventures for Kids. And. Um, it's quite interesting if you read a Choose Your Own Adventure story. Um, it, it makes the reader an active participant by making decisions, and then you jump to the, the place in the story, that particular branch, based on the decision you make. But, but it's, it's kind of interesting that there's, there's kind of a, I don't know how to say it, kind of emptiness about it uh, compared to a, uh, a novel where you don't have control over the actions that the author is going to, to create when they create a single timeline of the narrative. It's, it's, it's just kind of interesting to compare the choose your own adventure to, and and it never became a serious medium. I mean, as far as I know, there are no serious novels that are choose your own adventure.
0: I think we're getting closer to um, opening this up. I I like where we're expanding into this territory through. Let me pose a um, juxtaposition. Dr. Soon's ancestor um, had a position of power, having mastered um, not only poetry and calligraphy and the arts, but also, if I remember correctly, having a kind of... um, tyrannical power, power over the society, right? Um, I think the it is written um, not only of erudition, but also of tyranny. And yet he gives that all up in order to pursue the more lowly form of writing a novel, which is going to become the subject of, uh, or at least the main subject of the story. If you contrast that with his great-grandson, Dr. Soon, we see Dr. Soon almost ironically having taken up a position of scholarship as an English professor. Right, So very much one who studies, if not the English language, but also studies novels and prose and rhetoric, right? Uh, and yet finding himself subjected to a kind of tyranny, or at least he seems to struggle with one of those subjections. In this way, we can see that the this interesting connection between the ancestor and these crossings and parallels. But we also see some divergences. So in that way, Bega mentioned that um, we don't necessarily start our story, but we do have a hand in writing it. And that way, I think one of the things Borges is asking us to think about is this question of like, right, not just time past and and, uh, time as a temporal thing, but also the question of like uh, your ancestry or your lineage in that as it's descending on to you, because it seems to be a main struggle for this um, this character is, does he vindicate it through his choice um, to go through with the bombing or could he have been like Mr. Albert? and vindicated it by simply studying his ancestors' work.
1: What do you make of the quote? I mean, I think it's interesting. There's this section where Albert starts to sort of like unravel the thread for him, and he reads this these little stories about the warriors to him. And I'm reading the English version here. He says, it ends that paragraph on page eight with, I remember the last words repeated in each version like a secret commandment. Thus fought the heroes, tranquil their admirable hearts, violent their swords, resigned to kill and to die. I mean, I find there, I don't know, not to be pedantic or anything, but there's a kind of like Quixote-esque like flair to that of like, you know, it both reflects the protagonist's own kind of like pointless fate as that resigned to kill and to die. But it's like this, it's this noble stupidity, noble kind of foolishness of endlessly walking down these same paths that, you know, people over generations find themselves on. But that maybe, you know, I guess one thing I wanted to bring up, and I don't know why I didn't earlier, is that, uh, you know, there isn't a specific distinction in Spanish, at least to my understanding, for between maze and labyrinth. And so, although I think, I think Kent is right, that the story does seem to hint strongly at the latter, especially with the idea of the turning left to find the center. I do think that he might be, you know, productively playing with the meaning there, because... Because there are several moments where it almost seems like he's referring to Maze as well. So I wonder if it, just to sort of for us not to get stuck on just the idea that, oh, this can't be Maze because he doesn't say it. Like th- there's not exactly a, d- a neat distinction in that same way, I, th- I think, in Spanish.
0: Just to draw a further juxtaposition, um, because you mentioned uh, that that passage. Uh, I remember the last words repeated in each version, referring to two previous stories of the same army with different um, experiences. In each version, like a secret commandment, thus fought the heroes tranquil, their admirable hearts, violent their swords, resigned to kill and die. Slightly different translation. But I think it's worth keeping that in mind as we're talking about this question of um, ourselves and our ancestors, and sort of like our, our choices and, and our um, our trajectories, that uh, the ancestor in question, who wrote this uh, this novel, right, who wrote the Garden of Forking Paths the novel, uh, in the story, is murdered during his writing. In the same way, we're going to see his ancestor murder the man who's um, restored the story and kind of begun to figure it out. And ironically, uh, he will be put to death. Uh, Dr. Soon, that is, the man who does the murder, will be put to death, um, probably like the person who killed his ancestor.
3: I think it's worthwhile uh, kind of as a tangent mentioning, uh, you know, Heidegger wrote this uh, small book called Time and Being. And what's interesting about that book is that he kind of reverses um, Einsteinian uh, relativity theory. Uh, You know, in relativity theory, there's, you know, uh, X, Y, and Z minus T, you know, um, but... It creates this, uh, you know, space and time creates this four-dimensional block. And then there's geodesics running through those blocks. The paths are geodesics running through the block. Um, Heidegger reverses that and talks about, uh, uh, you know, at least my interpretation of it is that he talks about uh, present, past, and future. uh Minus one dimension of space, and so uh, you know, I mean, this this reversal of uh, taking the moments of time as if they were, you know, their temporal dimensions, and then adding space to it, and and basically what he came up with is what Minkowski spacetime is, which is uh, where you have these uh, light cones and if you venture outside the light cones, that's nowhere. And so that's the, the the one dimension of space that's added. And so there's this duality between Minkowski and, you know, normal Einsteinian view of four-dimensional space that is kind of interesting to consider in this context.
0: As we're getting to this question of... I see the question of agency coming up, too. and uh, In a moment, I'll let, uh, I'll cease my speech on that so someone else can um, give their viewpoint. But I think one thing we can begin to wonder here is we're seeing these different kind of um, paths shuts to pose with one another. We see the Garden of Forking Path, uh, the novel, uh, sort of extrapolated. By Mr. Stephen. And as, as Alyosha quoted, right, uh, even though he's a barbarian Englishman, there's <laughs> certain irony, right, that this, um, this sort of um, Chinese um, text is understood by a man who is in, in no way Chinese and yet becomes a sonographer, or not a sonographer, a sonologist. Um, there's this question of, I think, we we mentioned earlier like teleological efforts and and, and purpose right which is sort of interesting to think about in relation to a a juxtaposing of times that converge and diverge from one another parallel and um parallel and intersecting with one another if if any of them even touch or if they don't right Uh, all at once and yet there's this question of faith that comes up where it's there's, you know, the the characters say things like, on this man's fate, we remark, or um, this is, um, you know, I've resigned myself to this fate, these kind of ideas that there's sort of this thing in the future that um, the now is going toward. And in that way, it calls into question the question of agency, Right.
1: I just read, out. I, I kind of want to read out what I'd said in the chat and in, in response, because Begum was talking about the agency thing. Um, I, I This is just, you know, the way I'm interpreting it. But I said this, I suppose the way I'd see it is whenever he rejects the legacy that he has, he thinks of himself just as a man on a mission, a noble warrior, stupidly set to kill and to die. When he remembers that accretion of ages that's led himself to be in the present, he sees himself almost as an abstract perceiver. I think that's what they say in the text. And all his mission seems small and pointless. But he can't seem to stay there he always has to bring himself back to the grounded subject he's learned how to be and whose end is perhaps this fated conclusion but only insofar as he believes it is so then i i proposed if he would refuse to believe it perhaps he wouldn't be stuck in that fate just as the reader could cease reading or move to another page or choose not to incarnate the end of the story but feels the need to proceed to its bloody conclusion like a horror movie And i think that and i said thus the bar his comment in the prolong that the readers party to the crime i, I do think that's interesting especially if you think about like i don't know i think about the modern version of this of like people watching you know like uh, gore porn on the internet and like things of like you know mass crimes and things like that that are uploaded onto shock sites and things like that and uh, you know there's there's all these ways of you could even just a very act of seeing or of watching a movie I and mean, i think it's a very old point in sort of like critical theory to say that the act of watching isn't you know it's not a passive act it's it's a kind of voyeurism that has its own it is its own kind of ethical you know ph- phenomenon or choice there's a thing that's happening in that interaction that isn't just receiving information as people like to think about it there's a, there's a whole set of you know, possibilities just from the act of looking at something that are opened up so i wonder if maybe that's some of this as well that like you know even as we read this story you know, there's a way that I suppose you could step away from it in media res again, just as, just as the story starts in media res, you could cut out of it and, and the narrator wouldn't, his fate wouldn't come to be, you know, but it, you feel inexorably pulled towards that end and you kind of have to do, you know, that curiosity and that feeling of being wrapped up in that, in the fate of these characters almost in a sense is what is, what actually leads to them going down this road, you know, and I think that wouldn't be too outlandish for Borges, who I do think sees the text as something more than obviously, you know, words on a page, but a, a kind of uh, incarnated or, you know, I'm, I'm losing my words here, but, you know, an actual thing that one experiences. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that made sense at all, but that, that's sort of the things that I'm thinking about.
0: Actually, I really like that because the narrator constantly seems to, like you're saying, he almost comes out of the fatalism of his of his arguments, right? He says, "I argue that this was a sign of my courage." You know, he creates these sort of these symbols and these like portents of his fate. And yeah, I think Alyosha, you're you're absolutely right. When he's doing that, there are all these opportunities around there where he can do something else, right? Where he can choose not to kill. Um, mr albert where he can choose to you know take the train further right he doesn't have to get off sooner he could go further and escape altogether, flee the country there's there's a, a myriad of options available to him that he he seems to for some reason go toward these particular actions toward this end and like i said there's this sort of irony that um, that end is juxtaposed with, um, you know, the restoration of his his ancestor's great manuscript. And so, since you mentioned the quote, I remember the last words repeated in each version, like a secret commandment. Thus fought the heroes, tranquil their admiral hearts, violent their swords, resigned to kill and die. One thing we can see here, especially in the way that that quote sort of contrast with his uh, advice to the abominable earlier on where if you're going to do something abominable and horrific you've got to treat it or you should treat it at least as though it's something you're consigning to do and that you're absolutely going to carry out and it's almost faded in that way but uh in in his ancestors um work it's interesting because um he's talking about heroes in the way that i think whether the army gets slaughtered or whether they come out victorious, there's still a sense of heroicism. In the same way, I wonder if, um, if it I wonder if there's not a possibility of heroism for Doctor. Soon um, and his different choices, but a way that that's also changed now, where he's struggling with heroism and uh, sort of um,
1: atrocity. That is a good point. He does seem to be completely unbothered in the end by the idea of the people in the town of or this place of Albert that will be affected by his decision. And I think that that was something I was expanding on in the chat of like, to my previous point of, you could, if you really want to, there's a whole online underground culture of watching like these videos, like I said. And if you really wanted, you could go and watch, you know, Brent Torrance massacre in New Zealand right now, if you want to. And I think there's a whole discourse of sort of like, freedom of information, freedom of speech type of like right-wing chattery that looks at that kind of thing as like, well, I'm just looking at, you know, I'm just interested and I'm curious and I want to see what this thing is. But I think any one of us could easily look at that situation. And again, what I said in the, in the, in the chat is to view and consume that kind of text isn't consumption and no text is consumption. It's a kind of enacting an invocation, like a ritual. And if you see it like that, like a ritual or like a seance, in, in that kind of magical realist sense, that I think Borges might be inclined to, especially given his kabbalic leanings, you know, uh, that means that it's channeling through you. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's not something you look at externally. It's something that has to pass through you in order to become real. And I think in that in that sense, it's sort of like what you said, that you know, reading about those warriors and their their heroic fate. And, and you're right, it's heroic and it's this tragic heroism, whether they succeed or not like the warriors of Sparta or something. And there's a kind of, there's a fatalism to that, that you can resign yourself to, but it's almost like, I might be wrong here, but I I feel like Borges is almost implying that is really just a surface level reading. And that there's other ways and other possibilities of interacting with this. If you don't stick to just that kind of simplistic binary.
0: Yeah, and I think that helps us expand on this idea of ethicality in this story um, that we've kind of been moving toward and and we almost have to wonder, right? Um, And I think this is kind of on all of our minds is if there's this labyrinth of labyrinths around us and all these potentialities, how do we end up going, how, how do we end up in this now? making these decisions, if we are making these decisions, right? Because there's all these potentialities of um, contrary times and contrary labyrinths, right? There's ways that um, I'm not a character and your other potentialities. um, Or maybe you're doing the talking right now and I'm listening in a different one. And yet there seems to be this overwhelming sense of morality. um, Because you mentioned the the last um, paragraph and to expand on this question of sort of the the atrocious and the heroic and their juxtaposition, or in a a different sense, just the morality that's being discussed. The story concludes um, with this passage. The chief had deciphered this mystery. He knew my problem was to indicate, through the uproar of the war, a city called Albert, and that I had found no other means to do so than to kill a man of that name. He does not know. No one can know. My innumerable contrition and weariness. What do you guys make of that that closing statement?
1: Well, I I was saying in the chat, maybe, maybe he's feeling contrite. Maybe he's feeling this resignation because... In a sense, he, quote-unquote, his legacy, you know, the people have been doing this for generations. He's just one other person in this line of, you know, the the warriors tilting at windmills, in a sense. And so he's not just uh, one person on his own who committed this horrible act or something.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good starting point. Let me call your attention, though, um, the phrase... I had found no other means to do so. If there's this potentiality of different um, temporalities, if there's these different times in which alternatives are occurring, is the narrator correct that there was no other means to carry out the mission? Or were there different ways of doing it? Or perhaps like we said, were there other ways in which he didn't have to do this? Perhaps ask the question differently, right? Is he in a time where he is consigned to do this and fated, or is there this potentiality of choice?
4: Um, I think there is this choice, but would he be the same person after the choice? Or would he abandon the former version of himself if he would have changed how he acted? Therefore, like, uh, stepping into another labyrinth.
0: Yeah, that's a good point, right? If, the, if there is this potentiality, there's also this potentiality of who he could be and who he is. So in terms of ethics, what do you guys make of this, right? How do we have... Can, how, how does something like ethics come into being with this kind of um, conception of temporality of time?
3: Well, I think um, <clears throat> I think we, we ought to distinguish between um, you know pure chance and destiny. So if destiny is everything's determined and pure chance is nothing is determined and it seems like what what he's saying is this encounter that he's had with this man um, was pure chance but in some sense it was also uh, also uh, destiny but one, one of the things to keep in mind is that uh, the in, in the old English, um, the word for fate is weird and there's this concept in Old English of dream your weird dream your weird and and so this dream of the weird is um, it's really neither chance nor destiny it's somewhere in between and this has to do with um, the conception of time in the Indo-European tradition, uh, which is exactly the kind of time that that Husserl talks about in internal time consciousness, which Heidegger edited for Husserl, which is a sedimentary uh, conception of time. The uh, the in the in the old English, the there were only two kinds of time. There's the the complete and the incomplete. There was no uh, differentiation between future and past. Uh, either things were complete or incomplete, and, and basically that means that, like, you know, if something is dropping on the water, then it, it as it's traversing down through the water uh, until it settles on the bottom, you know, that's when it's incomplete because it could move different places. But once it's settled on the bottom, then it's then it's mostly stuck to one place, unless you know the currents change and the and the and the the, the 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 topology of the of the the bed of the stream changes and so that fact that the topology of the bed of the stream where the sedimentation is building up can change is is the difference between destiny and the the fate uh, or weird
0: So you mentioned there's chance and there's um, fate. But there's also this way this near uh, not this narrator that Dr. Soon is very explicit in his acts of planning, his acts of argument for persuasion, and this sort of intentionality he's um he's not he's finding uh, he, he's pointing himself toward and locating uh, if not spatially, at least temporally. So there seems to be this third point of planning, right, of intentionality. And in this sense, like his plan goes through all the way, even though he writes later on, it was terribly, uh, let me see here, I thought he said it was terribly performed, and I don't know if he meant terribly executed in a sense from the standpoint of a plan, or in the sense that it's just a terrible plan altogether because of the atrocity of it. But either way, right. We have somebody planning to do something that um, is certainly ethically questionable, whether it's heroic or villainous. And he seems to understand that um, in both ways, finally falling on the sense of like, is innumerable contrition and weariness suggesting that at the end of this, right. If this is a confession, it's one of contrition rather than heroic um, exploitation. Begum, um, could you expand on what you just wrote in the chat? That is not only very relevant, but very interesting. So there
4: is this concept of destiny in which you are, you are kind of uh, in it and you cannot really escape it, but you can um, constitute it, uh, not constitute, it, but like create it when you make choices in your path. So in Islam, I'm not sure if that is the correct interpretation, but there is this word in my language uh, that is kaza. It is, and it is similar in our language to, to accidents, that you are like, A striking moment met with something in which you have to make a choice. But uh, looking from the meta perspective of the destiny, both choices and their endpoints are somewhat given, and all those like forking paths, if you will, are like given to you. But what you will do in that exact moment is not determined. So I. As an agent, you are in, you are obligated in you are obliged to the contingency as well. You are part of the contingency, and by choosing one of them, you almost like continue that path and continue your destiny in that position. So it's very delicate because when you think too hard about it, it seems like it is predicting destiny. There is like a trick to it when people explain it, that its it doesn't contradict the destiny. So I'm not really sure if free will can be in it or not, but this is uh, like how oh, it was depicted to me that destiny is like a maze or like something that there are like choices in it, but which choice you will make is not predetermined. And maybe you can like... Create your own path in that too. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I, I love what you're you're describing there, and I would even say if, if we are encountering time, if we are encountering events to be more delusional about it, where there's decision making in that, and we're finding these forts in the paths um, or these these forts in the labyrinth, as you said. We have to wonder, right, where there is a path, is there not a destination or destinations, right? And this is I think one of the difficulties that this text is suggesting too is like especially in, in discussion of labyrinths and mazes, right? Is there a center or a way out that labyrinths and mazes actually point to that we're trying to find during um during the events in that on our way through life? Or is it less clear and more difficult to say, especially if these labyrinths are part of a more meta labyrinth?
1: I mean, I do think the whole idea of the labyrinth of labyrinths is interesting there because, you know, what if you follow the path to the center of the labyrinth and the center of the labyrinth is another labyrinth? You know, so it, there might not be an endpoint in, in that sense. And it might be that we we perceive it as that and we you can give it a name and say this is the end point but that it, it contains its own you know endless spiraling of other possibilities there's a russian doll kind of nick nature to it that maybe we do a violence to when we just say even this thing of like oh he reaches the center of it but like yeah but the center is another enigma that he has to you know unpack i wanted to read a uh, dionysian's uh, comment here Uh, which I thought was interesting. He says, if you take it as a many world quantum physics interpretation where everything that could happen does happen, then on at least one timeline he does the murder, meaning it's inevitable, which is what allows him to justify it to himself. Yet it also means he could have done otherwise in another sense. So there's a coexistence of choice and fate. I do think that's actually interesting that, yeah, uh, I'll leave it at that.
0: Yeah, precisely, right? It's, it's, so like, We've talked about this metatextual nature for this 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 story that Borges wrote, and if we think about literature and opening up the books, right? So Borges has implicated us as part of the crime just in the act of reading it. Uh, we might also say he's taken the mark off of himself for writing it. <laughs> in the same way, right? When we read a story, there's all these mysteries we're confronted with, all these potentialities things that could happen that aren't happening, that the author could have written or that we're at least able to imagine and even interpret or at least juxtapose our interpretation with potential ways of having written the story. And I think that speaks to how we experience time in a lot of ways when we look back on things. I should have done that. I could have done that. I didn't do that. Right. We have all these different ways of, of conceiving of what could have been as well as what is and i think the question of what is is often perhaps the most difficult one especially when we're dealing with our ethicality and that's exactly what i i think is so interesting about this story especially as something like a meta story is something that's perhaps reflexive with us is that if we have if we find ourselves in this kind of accidentality of the event where we almost find ourselves in the event, even if we're our plans are leading us through it, right? The narrator, um, Dr. Soon, could never have known that uh, Mr. Albert was the sinologist who had unraveled his uh, great-grandfather's great work and elucidated it and given it back to the world in a sense clearer than it had ever been, especially for him as a direct blood descendant. Right. This gets into... the the difficulty that is morality and trying to figure out how we should live in recognition that there's these different ways of living, that there's these different ways of handling events. Now, I'm not trying to arrive at a kind of universe where transcendental ethics here, but I am saying that I think this is um one of the great difficulties that this, this text is getting at is that great difficulty of ethicality, of dealing with uh, the event and the act and the other and the potentiality of all the differences in what we can do and who we're faced with and the uh, the multiplicity of the situation and so with that right if we recognize that people are engaging this kind of multiplicity of potentialities and their efforts is intimately connected to the potentialities and the choices they do make plans be damned right because the even if you make it through your plan, there's always the unexpected. There's always the other that you're confronted with. I think one of the interesting things about the story is is that um, if you take it as I've suggested, that this is less a this is less a statement for legal purposes and more of a confession that happens to be in a legal context, but is I think more immediately a confession, owning up to a kind of contrition a kind of um, weariness that uh, Dr. Soon described as innumerable, all the regrets and all the um, the joys he found along this path. I think at one level, that word that might be not spoken here is an ethics that begins to recognize this quality in people. And I do not want to call it uh, empathy because I think that I think that might be too limiting in this sense or that might not be exactly what I'm, I'm trying to suggest.
1: I don't know if people saw this quote and then just uh, 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 separately, I, I found this article that just kind of is talking about the piece. Um, there's an interesting aspect that I don't think we considered about, uh, you know, Albert's relationship with Sui Pen. And it sort of brings up the possibility of Albert being the one who killed Chi pen in order, in order for the novel to be incomplete, you know, so being again in another kind of complicity, be Chi pen either asking to be, or instructing Albert to murder him and then Albert sort of being murdered in turn, like always leaving this uh, incomplete story. There's something about the, the need to have this story not reach its conclusion. And, the, the circularity of it in a way of like, it almost starts to look like Albert is the one writing the story rather than the protagonist, which I think that is, uh, that is obviously a fun contradiction in, in a Borgesian sense. Um, there's another interesting parallel that this article brings up that I just wanted to, to draw our attention to. That was a bit earlier about the, the theme of war. Um, it said uh, the story initial. Uh, the story gives the, the reader a real-life historical figure, Little Hart, Hart, the English soldier, military historian and interwar theorist, known for the principles of war he addressed in his reaction to the high casualty rates of World War I. Uh, Little restates, the profoundest truth of war is that the issue of battle is usually decided in the minds of the opposing commanders, not in the bodies of their men, a quote that is derived from Sun Tzu. And then he kind of points out that that Yuzun might be a, a, an interesting anagram of that. Um, so Little also claims to be responsible for the initial plans that had become the Blitzkrieg attack. Uh, Borges might be making a commentary on warfare uh, and acknowledging you know, other predecessors and literary predecessors by subverting these two instances within one person's actions. Anyway, those are, these are two kind of tangential points. But I just thought it's interesting because the whole time we've been focusing on the ancestor angle, but even true to the own theme of the circularity of the story, I did we never really considered... Albert as a anything other than the one who kind of delivers the final message and then is murdered as opposed to one who potentially has in his own way helped to orchestrate this situation.
0: That's interesting so you're it sounds like you're suggesting then that um, in the same way that um, Dr. Soon has a hand in this unfolding, so too does Mr. Albert. Is that
1: correct yeah i think so i mean i'm I'm just i'm just throwing it out there but it's very compelling to me now that i think about it
0: and yet i would still say it's not in the same way although i think there's probably you know i I think and oftentimes the, the question of retrospect is one of morality um especially in this story where it is told in retrospect in contrast to history, where um, history is not, is, is, is not brought to light this, this testimony up till now at least. But I would say, um, if we're gonna stick with this, uh, this kind of idea of events and acts, right? And this way that we converge um, temporally and spatially, then, yeah, I think Albert's, uh, Mr. Albert's actions have led him to this point. But um, I'm not sure. So his actions having led him to this point in his pursuit of um, becoming a a sinologist. Right, that's the juxtaposition between um, Mr. Albert and uh, Dr. Soon that I think I think speaks to a lot of uh, the themes in this, especially in, with the common thread of um, the author of the Garden of uh, Forking Paths.
1: Sorry, significant about what?
0: Uh, Mr. Albert's role in um, this the story unfolding and uh, us arriving where we have, where he, um, he dies.
1: Well, like I said, I mean, it's just speculation, but it's almost—it almost seems like something has been entrusted to Albert, whether on purpose or not. And you know, the idea of Yutsun or the narrator protagonist per- per- perpetually presaging his own fate, and you know, seeing how things lead down this particular path. Uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm just trying to look at potential parallels, and I, I could see it as that way as well. Of like the, the character of Albert. Is has potentially expected this encounter as well, and if he did, then is as much an author of it as Yutsun is, and and perhaps just like the warriors who willingly fight and die, you know, sees his own mission or his own life in that way as well. I don't know. I'm I could be off the mark, but it's just an angle I hadn't considered.
0: I do like your point about secrets because. Right, Mr. Albert's secret, in a sense, is discovering the secret of the garden of um, forking paths. Right, is un, uh, is unraveling the interpretation and the kind of the um, the understanding of it. Right, is ultimately making a sort of literary argument, which is different than um, Dr. Soon's need to get this secret, to get the secret, the secret of um, bombing Albert out there in the open so that it can happen. And and yes, Megum, um, Albert is chosen by happenstance because uh, Dr. Soon consults the phone book and that's the name he finds. And it seems to be the only name in the book that he could choose. Uh, I think it was the only name in the phone book with um, the last name being Albert.
3: One thing that's interesting to take into account is that the uh, the name Albert is is evidently also the city. Um, so there's this conversion, you know, from from time to space, suggested by the story.
0: Yeah, and that contrasts well with. Um... Uh, the ancestors' insight that it's time is not, where uh, right? he takes time sort of outside of the spatial in that sense, or the consideration is not like like that of Newton and Schopenhauer prior.
3: You know, part of the perspectives on time, you know, that we ought to consider is uh, also uh, Heidegger and being in time, where he assigns the existentials, to the moments of time and basically says that time itself in every moment has both past present and future in it and that and that's existential time
0: You know, um, Alyosha. Since you mentioned the, the question of agency earlier, too, though, it seems like we've got to wonder that about Albert. In the same way that, uh, you know, what is his intent? What is his plan? Right? Because from from what's at least written in this story. It seems his plan is to discuss, is to show the stranger on his doorstep the garden of forking paths, or at least to, to mention it to him. Right? Because he he says to him. Um, before he knows who, who he's speaking with, he says, I suppose you're here to see the garden. The garden, and to which the reply is, the garden of what? And uh, Mr. Albert says, the garden of forking paths, to which the response is, the garden of my illustrious an- ancestor. I'm paraphrasing a little bit from memory. But right, that, that leads uh, Mr. Albert to take him in, uh, to take Dr. Soon and and discuss the garden with him and his ancestor so it does seem like there's a different sort of intent here um in just the position with the intent that um dr soon has taken to his doorstep
1: but again I, I mean i guess what you're saying the intent is to discuss the labyrinth and the meaning of it but then I, I guess I'm saying, well, is that the case? Because he specifically says he talks about the the strictly infinite labyrinth being Tree Pen's goal, right? So if he believes in that vision, then I guess I'm I'm theorizing that it's it's possible that Albert would also see the fallaciousness of trying to somehow, you know, solve or finish the labyrinth or beat it somehow, and that continuing to allow the mystery at, at its center to live is is in a way continuing to serve it. You know, I don't know that and then that in that sense he might not be his goal might not be communication so much as preservation
0: It sounds like you're saying the ethical question for Mr. Albert is how much, if any, to divulge about the Garden of Forking Paths. Which, again, that's an interesting cross point with the, you know, the notion of the secret, right? The secret as the word al- uh, Albert versus the, the seemingly secret that Mr. Albert has unraveled. Which I guess I think I can kind of see your point, too, because... Mr. Uh, Dr. Soon knows what's going to happen when the secret gets out as opposed to um, Mr. Albert, who doesn't know what an interpretation will lead to, right? Uh, Dr. Dr. Soon knows the interpretation that's going to occur in Germany when, when they get the word Albert, but Mr. Albert does not know what will happen when this interpretation of the text goes out there.
1: I guess we can come back to, again, in translation, that, that phrase that was quoted earlier. The author of an atrocious undertaking ought to imagine that he has already accomplished it, ought to impose upon himself a future as irrevocable as the past. And I suppose you could see it from the pr- perspective of the characters themselves, both of Yutsun and of Albert. And I think also in terms of the author as well, just the author in the abstract. Of like, I think, you know, Borges, I'm speculating. Might say that you know the author's job isn't to uh you know transparently communicate a set of meanings or something, but to evoke to uh, embark on this terrible task, which is a kind of violence you know and I think at least from the post structuralist kind of perspective that some of us are coming from, I think you could argue that you know most forms of prosaic language at least and if not all language, are a form of violence. To the world, or in the sense that they, they do violence to the world while per- perceiving, uh, I'm sorry, presenting themselves as like uh, mirrors or reflections, just reflections of the world as it is. And so, even the act of writing, of trying to communicate these stories and trying to invite one into one's life world, you know, he says that the lab, the Garden of Forking Paths is a perfect representation of the universe as Sri Pen saw it. Right, but even the act of trying to invite someone else into the the world as you see it to to come to the other shore, the shore that you're on, from their shore uh, across the shores of sense, I guess I'm saying is there's always an act of violence in that. And the difference in this story is that rather than uh, I was about to think in Spanish for a second, uh, what's the verb in English? Uh, hide or occult? I was going to say ocultar. Rather than hide the you know, that the nature of, the, of that, the violent nature of that, it the violence is externalized in the form of these succession, successive deaths, both like in terms of the chains of narrators, as well as in history with the warriors, you know, all this stuff is, there's no form of storytelling that doesn't involve some kind of violence in this casting, I guess. And that, that might be, I don't know, like whether a necessary evil or at least a starting point that you have to begin to understand and accept if you're going to then try and do anything else. I wonder if that's something that Borges is getting at as well.
0: Yeah, I think you have a very interesting point there, especially in terms of like when Dr. Soon says, for instance, who would go to war with, with a a a, a race of people with um, a geographic territory with rivers, with fireflies, with all these um, these beauties that are present there. And I, I think you have an interesting point too, where it's almost like I don't know though I still wonder because you use the word violence and I, I, I don't know if it's always violent. For instance i don't know if mr albert does a violence to um to dr soon during this story dr soon actually seems incredibly grateful so so much to the point he says in every single uh possible labyrinth i am grateful to you for doing this of course the response to that is not in every single one um as mr albert says
1: But even then that's a form of violence too. I mean, he's sacrificing himself, isn't it? So he's on the other side of it, but he's, whether he's willing or unwilling, I guess what I'm saying is that there's no, even the whole act of the linguistic act of transmitting the code of what this city is happens through the death of this man, you know, And, and let's not forget either that the whole story is taking place in the context of a war as well and that this is kind of like a small aside within that war. So I, I definitely think, whether whatever you want to call it, there's a form of violence or sacrifice in, all, in every kind of like layer of this story, but it may be just sort of uh, subsumed under other things.
0: Yeah, I just see where you're coming from, right? Because even, even in that moment, there's a bit of a clash, right, in the sense that um, Mr. Albert Koretz, Dr. Soon. I guess I would ask you, how do you mean violence?
1: Well, again, I'm, I'm just thinking out loud here, and other people feel free to jump in, but I'm, I'm just saying, you know, communication in this story, if you, t- if you just want to take a step back and just look at what's happening kind of uh, instinctively, at the act of communication in this story is not an easy one. It's not one that just happens by people having conversations. It's a difficult one at the very least. But it seems that to me that it's more than just difficult. Like there is a, as a spy, you know, this character has to commit an act of violence to carry out his mission. And that even for, like we said, Albert and, and his reading of the story, like, you know, the, the original telling is that Sri Pen is killed before he can finish the novel, right? But as you begin to read it more, it starts to look like, well, Sri Pen's intention, sorry, I, I don't, I'm making up this pronunciation for <laughs> I know, it's completely wrong. Uh, but that his intention all along was to keep the story open-ended and not finish it, which then, you know, it, it, you can, you know, you can lead that down its morbid conclusion of like, does that then mean that, so you can either expected, anticipated, or desired to be killed in order to not finish the story. Uh, because like all of us, there is that inexorable, uh, analytical, or just uh, thinking, waking mind, the, the the pull of the waking mind to kind of like reach the conclusion of a thing. And rather than do that, he allows this to happen. And then if that's the case, then I'm, I'm just, again, I'm asking in terms of, You know textual parallels. Then couldn't you also read that in terms of Albert and Yutsun? That what you know Yutsun is looking for answers, but even when he gets his answer, he gets his a complete answer, and he and he's like, wow, that's really interesting. And then he asks the guy to turn around, and he and he says he very calmly points the gun and carefully shoots him in the back. And it's sort of like, you know, I got to know the the they talk about that circular text, which the final page is the same as the first page, like the. He's fulfilling these, they're both, they're all fulfilling these roles. But in, in all of this, if I'm just going to make it an armchair reading, I, that's what I'm saying, that if we're thinking about the role of the author, writing the text, what we were saying before about writing as a, reading as a ritual of invocation rather than just a passive act, that, and, and that there's no way of communicating sense across ages, across time between beings between parts of being that isn't going to have some form of loss as well like that there's not going to be some completely transparent one-to-one ratio of transmission of sense that again my, my armchair reading that i'm proposing is just that there's a that there's a there's a violence in that that we ignore and that this story is just bringing to the fore and and making explicit and that perhaps that cycle you know is continual and in that is is just the act of writing and speaking in language you know that's I'm very particular to that because I <laughs> I like readings of language that are like that but that's just what I'm proposing proposing you no
0: know, I do think I see where you're coming from because even when we when we discuss interpretations right there is conflict and it's interesting too I was thinking about this the other day that in philosophy that kind of tension and conflict often gets like associated with the like the capital R right or like you know what is correct right if not what is sound you know what is kind of like you know larger than that and stands above it sometimes but I was thinking too like when it comes to artists and like uh that kind of crowd of people who make music or literature and that it's not the way they view it right and they they speak to trying to create like a myriad of interpretations, quite often, like a prism of it, and so in that way, I do see, I do see your point that there's this conflicting of, um, of interpretation and of intent, right? And um, it sounds like you and I are using the words conflict and violence kind of similarly. So I, th- I think I can see where you're coming from. But with that, I think this is our two-hour mark. Does anybody want to make a? Um, closing statement or some final thoughts or final questions and I'll say then for my own part I like this story in the way that it, even as Alyosha and I are going back here um, in this conversation it does present an interesting challenge to the way it, at least I want to think about ethics where I'm inclined to think about it um, it reminds me of There's this um, quote by Mikhail Bakhtin that's something like, um, when it comes to thinking, you know, I have my internal side and I think with myself in that, but ultimately I need to look into the eyes of the other and in that way share these internal worlds and have them share theirs with me. I also see the point too of like, like, Delusian cruelty, where, like, there's a way that we put desire into production, and that, you know, there's this this way that we put blood into the things that we do, or that we, um, you know, when we engage with others, there is this kind of conflict that occurs with that. Nope. Anyone else?
1: I think we also do a violence to Borges by not reading five or six of his stories in a row. I know we can't do that necessarily in the scope of the class, but the way he constructs his books and anthologies, it seems to really play on a lot of these concepts themselves. So it might be a side a side thing for us to do at some point.
0: Well said and well received. (laughs) Well, if nobody has any um, other thoughts or final words, Uh, We'll move right to the close. And so thank you all for being here with us today as we discussed Borges, the Garden of Forking Paths. Uh, We'll be voting in the literature group on the text to read after this one and announcing it shortly. So thank you for joining us and being a part of the discussion.